Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Church, it's good to be together again on this, the Lord's Day, uh, the day that the Lord has given us to worship Him and come together and encourage one another. It is wonderful to be together, especially it is wonderful on this special day when we welcome new members uh, uh, as we receive some members who are wanting to join, uh, join us in fellowship, uh, in formal fellowship. So this is a good day for us and especially we're going to enjoy both of the sacraments today, uh, uh, communion and the baptism. Let me say this uh, to the children, the word for this morning is outcast. The word that you're going to be counting in your sheets this morning is outcast. Won't you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts? We are continuing in our series. And this morning we found ourselves uh, continuing with uh, Philip the Evangelist uh, in chapter twenty, in chapter 8 and verse 26. I'm going to try and be brief this morning because of all the activities that we have uh, in front of us. Philip, uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Hear God's word. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Kandake, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? He invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth and began with the scripture. He told, beginning with the scripture rather, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, "See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized?" And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus 
And he passed through, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is God's word. The history of the world is chock full of tales regarding outcasts, regarding social pariahs, and those who are considered in different communities to not be blessed, to not be ideal. In every society, you find signs of what that society appreciates. And whenever somebody does not have what that society appreciates, or depending on how far they are from what that society appreciates, they themselves are not appreciated and are made to feel as outcasts. And we see this in different categories. For example, health is a big thing. And if people have all-round health, They are loved and cherished and set up as the ideal in a society. There are certain kinds of diseases that immediately make people want to stay away from you. In Israel, it was leprosy and the uncleanness that comes from leprosy. In a post-2020 world, it is sneezing in public. But there are beauty standards also all over the place. Not just health, it's also beauty standards that we see all over the place. Every year, magazines sell hordes and hordes and get lots and lots of money by saying these are the top 20 most handsome people in the world or top 20 most desirable women in the world. And so everybody then is judged by how far they are from what that's the society sets up as the ideal. Fertility is another category. Fertility in some cultures is a massive deal. When someone cannot have children through either not being married or physically not being able to do so, there is this subtle accusation from the society. You are an outcast. You are not ideal. You are not what we want to be like. You are not the cream of our crop. It can also go to many different things. It can go to financial standing. How far are you up on the corporate ladder? If you're low, you're not treated well. And if you're high, you're appreciated. Family dynamics of children born out of wedlock. In families, if there's a child that was born out of wedlock, then they are made to feel that they're not a citizen of that family, as it were, a full citizen. God's community of people, the Israelites, had their outcasts as well. And the text in front of us shows us God going after an outcast of the highest order. The outcast status of this pot, this person that God is vigorously going after in this text is at the bottom of the barrel as it relates to his standing in religious Israel. And yet here we see in this text God coming down and going after this man specifically by name. The text in front of us is a text of great intrigue. You might wonder, why is it that Luke saw it useful to include this in his narrative to Theophilus? We've been seeing the movement as as Luke is trying to draw how the church go from that small nucleus of 120 to a church that is all over the place that has even arrived to Theophilus. Why would then he now pause to tell us about this one specific person here? I'm going to argue this morning 
that Luke sees the importance of God leading Philip in this way as fundamentally important story regarding the nature of those who will be a part of this rising new empire. Who is it that is allowed in? Who is it that can have citizenry in this rising empire, this this new kingdom that is subversively rising in between, in, in the midst of the world? So this morning, very briefly, because of the many activities today, I'm going to be do something very brief. I'm going to do two things. First, I want to explain the text so that you have a grasp of it. And then I want to show you the significance of the text in the grand scheme of redemptive history. So first, we see here in verse 26, God himself being directly involved in evangelism. Look at verse 26. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. To Gaza. This episode begins in a manner that is unusual so far in Acts, but which we will see a few more times in the book as we go in it. And that unusual thing here is that God is directly speaking to a missionary and telling him where to go. God here, remember where we are at. We saw this. We saw that Stephen preached that powerful sermon in the temple, telling them that the temple is nothing and that all of that you're trying to keep the law, you are the ones who are actually opposing the law throughout, throughout history. And then they killed him and then the church was scattered. And now we saw last week that they, as they were scattered, they were going about preaching. They were going about traveling, trying to find a, a place to stay. And as they're going in their way, They are proclaiming the gospel. And then we saw last week Simon the magician, also the gospel arriving to him and those in Samaria. But God here is not content to let Philip just preach as he sees fit. Do you see this? God is not content to allow Philip to just preach as he goes along, as he's been doing so far. Just going to an area and then proclaiming. God here wants to give Philip a specific direction. Go down this way. Take this turn. Go to this person. Now this raises a few questions. Who is this special person that God wants to evangelize? So far God was just allowing them to preach as they, and, 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 and of course providentially directing them. But now he is in a special way revealing himself and saying go directly to this way to find this person. Who is this person? Why is this person so special? Well, let's consider this person's identity in verse 27. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Kandake, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Along the desert road that he is instructed to go down to Gaza, Philip comes on a traveling chariot making its way southward. And in it was a eunuch who was the treasurer of the kingdom of Ethiopia who had made pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship, probably for one of the festivals, and was now returning home. The kingdom of Ethiopia lay on the Nile. While this kingdom is called Ethiopia, In modern day, today, it's actually Sudan rather than what we know as Ethiopia. Uh, It's actually what this kingdom was in Sudan. 
The two chief cities of this particular kingdom were Mero and Napata. The king of Ethiopia at that time, the king that this man would have been serving, was worshipped as a child of the sun, and the people of Ethiopia regarded him as too sacred a person to be busy with royal functions. So all royal functions were to be done by the regent or the queen mother, the mother of the king, who was given the name Kandake. I know some of you, as I was reading, you thought perhaps I was mispronouncing a very simple English word. But it's not Candice, it's Kandake. I know, I saw it, I saw it, yeah. You looked at me twice. It's actually Kandake, it's not Candice. Sorry if there's a Candice in here. Um, there is, a, there is a long history of eunuchs being involved in the courts of Egypt and Assyria and Persia throughout history. They are people, these are the people, eunuchs are the people that if you lived in those, ancient, in those ancient times, the eunuchs are the people that you want, if you're a king, to manage your harem. These are the people that you want to, if you want, if you have a group of concubines or a number of wives, these are the people that you want to, to manage that. You don't want men who are full-bodied, as it were. And in many cases, these eunuchs became the most trusted advisors in the ancient world. In China, for example, the first imperial eunuch that we read about was recorded in 1100 BC, and the last eunuch who served the last emperor only died in 1996. The Byzantine Empire, which was a Christian empire, had eunuchs as well in their service, and this continued long after the Muslims take over the, Byzant- the Byzantine Empire, all the way into the Ottoman Empire in the 20th century. See, these men in, 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 around the world, especially in the ancient world, eunuchs had high places and they were treasured and they were used in specific positions and they were trusted by the kings because, that they, because they were eunuchs. But in Israel, these men were considered damaged goods. In Israel, if you were a eunuch, you were considered a damaged goods. Come with me for a moment. Hold your pace in Acts chapter 8. And I want you to see the significance of this. Come with me to Deuteronomy chapter 23. Deuteronomy chapter 23. And in Deuteronomy 23, we see a list of people who God is excluding from the assembly. And in verse 1, here, here's what we find. No one who is a eunuch, that is, no one who is castrated, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. See, eunuchs were not allowed in the assembly. And thus, Gentile eunuchs, those who were eunuchs and they were Gentiles, were not allowed to be formally recognized converts to Judaism. The status of proselyte, which we saw, uh, I think in chapter 6, when we were reading the list of the men of the seven, and we saw Nicolaus was called a proselyte, he was a Gentile, but he had the status of proselyte, known as a convert to Judaism. That status would not be given to a eunuch. Um, If you are a a proselyte, uh, you would be able to access the outer court in the temple, what is called the temple, the court of the Gentiles, where they were, remember when the Lord Jesus turned over tables, because that's where they were selling stuff. Um, But if you were a eunuch, you weren't even allowed even there. 
If you were a Gentile, you couldn't come in to this particular special place of the Israelites. You could come here, but if you're a Gentile eunuch, you're even further away. You're not even allowed inside. Eunuchs would not, if, if there was a eunuch in Israel, because of this text, they would not made a formal citizen of the nation of Israel. While by this time, it is obvious that they were allowed to come and worship, they were certainly not allowed to come and stay. Many pilgrims would come to, to Jerusalem to come and worship, and many would decide to make this home, to make Israel home. Perhaps the diaspora would come back, but if you're a eunuch, you're not allowed to be a part and parcel of the nation of Israel. And the question that you might have right now is why? Why would God make such a law to say those who are eunuchs are not allowed to be a part of my assembly, a part of my congregation, a part of my people? Why would God do such a thing? There are at least two reasons why God restricted mutilated men from being a part of the assembly. Number one, castration is the mutilation of the nature of man as created by God, which was irreconcilable with the character of the people of God. In other words, a a man who is castrated represents the disorder and chaos that is the problem in the world. And God would not allow that. He would, this, in, that. God would not allow that here among His people, where He is redeeming a people. And in the same, in the same way that God would not allow a leprous person to come near the temple because they, they are the height of uncleanness, a castrated man represents sin and a disordered creation. That's the first thing. The second thing. Is, is because, remember, these laws were, were, were moral and pedagogical, that is, teaching, but they were also, at that time, they were also civil. They had a function to control the society of Israel. And so this law was intended to prevent the Israel rulers from making eunuchs out of the children of Israel. You see, because, remember, as I said, this was a, a wide practice. Remember how the people of Israel said, hey, we want to have a king, like all the nations have a king. In the same way, a king or a ruler would have said, hey, let me have some eunuchs and organize my house and organize my things around eunuchs, just like all the nations around me have eunuchs. So God made this law as a way to protect Israel from being made eunuchs, as it were. God was not being mean or unkind in making this law. Rather, he was teaching his people about order. He was teaching his people about design. He was teaching his people about truth. And that the Israelites were to be entirely a different nation. But if you read Deuteronomy chapter 23, I hope you haven't left. You'll see that there are more outcasts listed there in the following verses. There are more people, more categories of people who are not allowed in the assembly of God's people. Not allowed citizenship with full rights among God's people. Look at verse 2. No one born of a forbidden union may, may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite, verse 3. 
may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loved you. Verse 2, we are told that the people born of a forbidden union were also not to enter the assembly. They were also not to be allowed full rights within the citizenry of Israel. The forbidden union here, here was understood to mean primarily incest, but could also include adultery. In fact, even today, Jewish children who are born of incest or adultery are not circumcised. They are not considered part of the nation. And today they call them mamzers, which is the, the Hebrew word here, the word mamzer, someone who's born as an illegitimate. And in Jewish law, a mamzer is not allowed to marry a Jew. Uh, they can only marry another mamzer or a foreigner. They're not allowed, if you were born out because of incest or adultery here, you're not allowed to just marry anybody else. It is written down in the law that you need to find somebody else to marry who fits specific categories because you are considered to taint Jewishness, to taint this unit, this people here. In fact, there are many articles, you could just Google Mamzers, and you'll find there are many articles that explain the plight of these Mamzers even to today. They, they, they often have to travel overseas if they want to get married because it is such a long thing to try to get married within Jerusalem. Sorry, within, within Israel. And not only that, but in verse 3 and following, those who are Ammonites or Moabites would not be allowed as part of the covenant community because the Ammonites and the Moabites acted in despicable ways towards the Israelites when they were in need. The Ammonites and the Moabites not meet them with generosity and kindness, with bread, but they treated them evilly. So God is saying, even if they might come here as sojourners, you guys, though, are never to allow them full citizenry amongst your people. We see this interpreted for us even in Nehemiah chapter 13. When Nehemiah, when at the time of Nehemiah, they, they, they read, you know, in the time of Nehemiah, it's a, it's a great time of revival and reformation in the, in, in the life of Israel. And then they happen to read this text and then they apply changes to it. Let me read for you Nehemiah 13 from verse 1. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God, yet our God turned the curse into blessing. And listen to the response of the Israelites in Nehemiah 13, verse 3. And as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those who are of foreign descent. They now, before, they were part and parcel, but when they read Deuteronomy 23, in the time of reformation, in a time of going back to God's law, they said, let's separate these people because we're not supposed to be intermingling with them. So since the time of Nehemiah, 
up until this time now when Philip is ministering, the eunuchs, the Mamzers, and the Ammonites remain outcasts. Pariahs. They remain people who are tolerated but who cannot be fully welcomed into the household of God. Eunuchs are outcasts because their bodies are no longer in line with nature. Mamzers are outcasts because their parents indulged in sin. And Moabites are outcasts because their ancestors were wicked, unkind, and lacked generosity. For generations, this was a reality. There was no real fellowship. Yes, these outcasts would be allowed to come to the festivals, to come to sacrifice, to hear the word of the Lord, but they would not be allowed full citizenship. There would always be something above their heads saying, you are an outcast among the covenant people of God. You are not part and parcel of what God is doing at this time in the world. What are we to do with this? What does this teach us? This law and this separation. What does this, what does this mean for us? What, what are we supposed to glean from this? The the first and primary thing we are to glean from this is that sin has disastrous effects. Sin has disastrous effects. For God to exclude people like this from the community of redeemed Israel, He wants us to see how unnatural sin is. He wants us to see that sin is sin. It is a loud warning against sin. See, there are many things that you and I, because we're living here and watching the world, there are many things that you and I can start to think are normal. Many things that the world around us enjoys that seem to be fine and useful and have a good utility. But in seeing God make such laws as this in the Old Covenant reminds us that sin is not a light thing. Sin is not something to be trifled with. If God has spoken, you can't now come and change things. You have to do what God says. Like the eunuchs, to fiddle with a person's sexuality is not a light thing. To fiddle and do things to a person's sexuality as they are created by God is not a light thing. To mutilate the body and decide that the the sexual design that God has for people is not fitting for whatever purpose that you have is a sinful, unnatural, debased, abominable thing. The design that God has for men and women in the way that He has designed it is wonderful and He said it is very good. Do you remember Genesis 1? He said it is very good. To fiddle with that is to offend God. God's sexual design is not a mistake. You cannot choose that your members that God designed you with are now a problem for your purposes. If God says one natural man is to only be joined to one natural woman in a lifetime of matrimony, you are now not free to decide whether or not those limitations are you. Yeah, myself, I like multiple women. So I'm just going to join myself with multiple women. Yeah, yeah, myself, I like multiple men. So I'm going to join myself to multiple men. Yeah, yeah, myself, I want to explore and experiment and try to figure out the boundaries of my sexuality and do things, certain things that are beyond speaking, that cannot be said, because you're trying to figure out the, the bounds, you're experimenting, you see, you're enlightened, you understand. 
So you're trying to experiment, even in a time of university, when it's a time where you're trying to figure things out. Let me experiment with this and see where it goes. No, no, no. The sexual design as it is designed is perfect. It is the design of a holy God and contravening that in any shape or form is disorderly. It is bringing back, bringing back the chaos that we read in Genesis 1 verse 2 was there before God made everything orderly. In the case of the illegitimate mamzers, this is what it says to us. To sleep with someone whom you are not married to is unnatural, debased behavior. To enjoy sexual images of a woman or a man that is not your legal wife before God is abominable. God hates it. He's not sitting up there in heaven with a perpetual smile as you participate in these evil things. He despises it. And so that's why he's going to make these strong laws to remind us, to tell us his sexual ethic is to be obeyed. To lust after a person who is not your lawfully wedded person, spouse, is evil. That's what the exclusion of these illegitimate mouths are screaming to us. It's not just, hey, did I get to this point? Jesus even explained that it's in the heart. Jesus explained that this lust that's in the heart for someone that is not mine, legally so before God and man, is an abomination. So much so that if you were living at that time and you produced a child in that union, your child would be a pariah for the rest of his life. As in the case of the Ammonites and the Moabites, this is what it teaches us. To be unkind and to lack in generosity is evil. To be selfish and full of hate is evil. I understand that in the modern age we're conditioned to think of our people as enemies. This political group consider these people, these people enemies. These people who hold to this economic theory consider these people to be enemies. But let me tell you something, to not meet someone with bread because they look a certain way, believe a certain thing, act in a certain way, to not meet them with bread, with kindness, with generosity, when they are in need, is evil debased schadenfreude do you know what that word means schadenfreude that the pleasure that is derived by someone from another person's misfortune do you know those times when you see your political opponent getting something at them yeah you know those times when you see your your the, the person you know that that ex of yours that you broke up with and then now things are going bad in their life Trying to decide who won the breakup. <laughs> you see, that, that shouting part, that feeling of excitement when someone else is having misfortune, that is debased, abominable behavior. Because the Ammonites and the Moabites treated the Israelites that way. They were coming in need of bread and water, walking, and they chose instead. Not, just, not only did they not treat them with kindness and generosity and meeting them with bread, but also... They consulted with Balaam to try and curse them. Out of an act of self-preservation, self-promotion, self-pushing forward, they decided that these people need to be destroyed, even though these people needed bread. 
Let me tell you, dear saints, that these things are evil. I know today people believe, people want to stand and say, no, let's be strong and, and, and say whatever we want to our enemies and speak as strong as we want and, and say all over the things. But Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for them. Jesus said, Paul says to Timothy in, 1 Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that those who are even religious opponents, those who are teaching things that are abominable and from Satan, we are to treat them with kindness and gentleness. Because Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 26, who knows, maybe God might win them over. But here we are, because they are our opponents, because they are on the other side, we just feel free to say whatever we want and we call it standing tall and speaking like a man. It isn't. It is debased, abominable, immoral behavior. You need kindness, meeting with generosity, being hospitable, even to someone who is a potential enemy, is a good thing. To meet with bread, an enemy, to meet with water, when they are parched. Peter even says that to wives, you know, you might burn hot coals on their heads by doing that. Let this be a warning to all of us that, un- that to not live in the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, to not live in those is, 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 is an affront to God. To not live in gentleness, to not live in kindness, to not live in love is an affront towards God in as much as messing up the sexual ethic is an affront to God's law. The better way, the Christ-like way is to meet people with bread and water. The fact that these people were excluded and termed outcast by God reminds us of our duty to reject the works of evil. Titus 3 verse 11 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That's the lesson from that law. That's the lesson for why, from what, why they're excluded. But let's come back now. Remember we are in a time, Philip is, is living in a time where a eunuch would be an outcast. A eunuch would be a persona non grata, as it were. Did I say that properly? With that, bro, with that backdrop, notice in our text, come back to our text in verse in Acts chapter 8, and notice that God is intent on having Philip minister the gospel to this outcast in Acts chapter 8. The one, this one whose very existence in this way screams disorder, screams sin, the Spirit of God is intent on pursuing him. He first told him, go down this way. That's where you'll find him. He didn't tell him who you'll find. Just said, go down this way. And he went. And when he went down there, he saw him. And Philip, being a Jew, being the, the, uh, the Hellenistic Jew that he probably was, would have been very happy to just walk past. But the Spirit of God says this to him. The Spirit said to Philip, verse 29, go over and join this chariot. And Philip, being the evangelist that he is, he ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And when, and, and for you to understand this, this is not a car, okay? This is a chariot. It's probably being pulled by uh, an, an ox wagon, from what I'm told. 
So that's why he was able to run and catch up with him and even hear him speak. Don't imagine a guy on the highway running <laughs> with a car fast, okay? This is a chariot. Uh, so just imagine it, you can catch up with them at normal uh, uh, pace, as it were. So he's running, and then he hears him read the prophet. And he asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, oh, but how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. The text that he's reading, that he hears him read, is a wonderful text. You can see how much the Lord has been orchestrating things so that this man might hear the gospel. I mean, if you were to find, if, if you were to walk past someone on the street and they're reading Isaiah 53 loudly, you would pause. Because is there a better text in the Old Testament than Isaiah 53 that explains the good news of the gospel? See, God was God was after this man. He had organized everything such that even by the time Philip arrives, he gives him, here's a great opportunity to hear, to preach to this man the gospel. And when the man asks him, how can I understand this? Unless someone explains it to him, to me, Philip the evangelist uses the opportunity to explain the gospel from Isaiah 53. He likely first answered the first question he is asking because the, the eunuch is asking, hey, who is he talking about here, the prophet? Is he talking about himself or someone else? He probably would have told him, no, he's talking about Jesus of Nazareth. This is a prophecy. Speaking of Jesus of Nazareth, who was born of a virgin, who lived a perfect life, who taught the very words of God, and then was destroyed, was killed on the cross at the, at the hands of wicked men. But it was all the purpose of God. He probably explained about Christ that the death of Jesus Christ, this, this, this being led to the slaughter, led to the salvation of many. That, that because of this man's death, this Jesus' death, this person whom we see in Isaiah 53, because of his death, forgiveness is now found for everyone who wants it. Everyone who cries out to it. Anyone who would say, I am in need of forgiveness. They can find it because of the death of this one that the prophet speaks about. And he most likely, being a good evangelist, would have most likely explained the resurrection of Jesus Christ that, that guarantees life. That because Jesus Christ rose again on the third day, did not stay dead, those who believe in him will have the same hope. Death shall no longer be feared. Because death will be defeated and they will also rise again from the dead. And as we have seen in Acts, he would have also told him to receive this gift of eternal life, of an entrance into not only the earthly Israel assembly, but the eternal assembly, the eternal Israel. One has just to believe in the name of Jesus the Messiah. And upon hearing this, the eunuch wastes absolutely no time. Look at what he says in verse 36. Wasting no time. 
And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Whoa, 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 see, behold, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? I believe this, Philip. I hold to this. What prevents me now from getting the external sign of union with Christ? Now, I hope, I don't know if you know this, but if you see this, but in your Bibles, some of your modern, most of your modern Bibles will jump from verse 36 to verse 38. Do you see that? Some of them have verse 37, but they jump from verse 38. Most of the modern Bibles will jump from verse 36 to verse 38. And the reason for that is this. It is quite obvious from the manuscripts uh, that we have, extant, that some people inserted something that somehow may create, became verse 37. So some people felt like you can't just jump from verse 36 to verse 38. So there needs to be some kind of a conversation between Philip and Peter and going backwards and forwards. But it is quite obvious uh, when we do the, 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 the work of trying to compare manuscripts and to see, uh, and this is a, a long discussion, if you come to Growth Group this week, yeah, you will, we will discuss this a bit more. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this now. I'm just, it's just an advertisement for Growth Group during the week. <laughs> we will discuss this in more detail and we'll go to other texts as well. We've dealt with this in the past. Um, but certainly this, this suggests this thing, this suggests this, uh, that it is very obvious in the study of what we call textual criticism. It is obvious that verse 37 was inserted. It is not original. Luke went from verse 36 into verse 38. If you want to know what does that mean, what are the implications of that, come to growth group on Wednesday. We'll talk about that. Well, verse 38, and he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Let me tell you this, this is the response to the gospel. This is the correct response to the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ that says all men, outcasts or no, can have forgiveness of sins. The only right response is, I believe, can I be baptized? If you're sitting here today and you're wondering about the gospel of Jesus Christ and you're thinking about all of its corners, you're wondering what should even be your response be, your response should be this. Believe it. Trust in Christ. Trust in the work that He did on the cross. And then ask, where can I be baptized? Come. Come ask us. And we will baptize you, trust me. Oh, we love baptisms. We've had a number of baptisms last year. We're doing more today. We love baptisms. We will, ba- we will not refuse you water baptism if you want to be as an outcast as you are if you want to be a part of the eternal kingdom of God all you have to do is trust in the name of Jesus Christ and then ask where's the water so that I can publicly proclaim but that is the text and I want to show you now the meaning of the text very briefly in the next two or three minutes leave Acts And come with me to Isaiah 56. The significance of the text is found in Isaiah 56. In Isaiah 56, we are are told of a mission that God is going to start and engage in. 
And it is in there that we understand now even the movement of Luke. Because now Luke now focuses his attention from now to chapter 9, especially chapter 9 and chapter 10 and chapter 11. He now focuses his attention on the themes that are found in Isaiah 56. Look with me at verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely, will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name. Better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. If you are an outcast, a eunuch, a foreigner, don't say that the Lord will separate you from his people. No. Rather, if you come to him, hold fast to his covenant, he will give you an everlasting eternal name that will, that will live forever. Not only will you become a citizen, you will become a citizen of some repute. You understand? Not, just, not, not only will you just be allowed in the country, but you will be able to hold positions in the country. You will have an everlasting name. Look at verse 6. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, listen to this, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. What we're seeing in this text, in this little exchange between Philip and the eunuch, we're seeing the great gathering of outcasts begun. The outcasts, those who are social pariahs, even among the people of God, they're now being called in. It is now time where God himself comes, the angel of the Lord, the spirit of the Lord comes to speak and say, come in, come in. Are you an outcast? Do you not meet certain social standards? Do you feel the, the, how far you are from righteousness and holiness? Are you an outcast among the people? And even an outcast from God, you feel far because of your sin? The great gathering of outcasts has begun. You do not need to now stay in that status of being an outcast. Now, not only will you just become a proselyte, you will become a citizen with a great name. Come to Christ. In coming to Christ, you will be given a new name, an everlasting name, an inheritance among those who call Christ their Lord and their Savior. Won't you come to Christ? Won't you turn from the sin that keeps you as an outcast? The sin that you love so much, it keeps you as an outcast. Keeps you far away from God. Why would you continue in something that leaves you out in the cold and not fellowshipping with the great God of the universe? Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Come to Him. Have your sins forgiven. Cry out to Him. Ask, what can I do? Where can I be baptized? And you will find a door wide open for you. And to you, dear church, members of Heritage Baptist, congregation here, your attitude towards outcasts should not match that of the world. The social pariahs, those whom we in our society esteem low, your attitude should be more righteous than that of the world. Your attitude is this. The great gathering of outcasts has begun. Come in. If, a, if an outcast were to walk in the doors, well, he wouldn't walk in both of the doors. He'd walk in one of them. <laughs> if an outcast would walk into one of the doors, would you greet him with bread and water? We should. Now, I have great confidence in you, Heritage. You have done it in the past. Let me encourage you to do it more. Those who are outcasts, those who socially seem like ace, we all want to keep our standing away from them. Your task is now to be like Philip. The Spirit has spoken. The angel of the Lord has spoken. Go to them and call them in. Let's pray. Oh, great gatherer of outcasts. We thank you that we ourselves were foreigners. We ourselves were outcasts in different ways. You have welcomed us in to the assembly. And we ask, Lord, that this reality might be real in our hearts. As we know that our identity is in the citizenship that we have in the eternal Israel. In the eternal city of Jerusalem. And that that might be the defining name that is on our foreheads. And we pray, Lord, for any here who are feeling themselves to be outcasts, even as they maybe they're coming to church and it's a bit awkward because they know that they're living in some kind of sin. We pray, Lord, that you would grant them true repentance and a true crying out of their sin. Because of their sin. In Christ's name we pray this. Amen.